Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We hope you experience God today. Make sure you visit us at risenking.life to take all your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. I've been, uh, well, every, every year as the start of the year, I always spend the first two weeks just praying, Lord, what do you have to say to our people? What do you have to say to each of us as a church, as individuals? And I have this really specific word. It's uh, been ringing in my ears. The Lord has been speaking it to me for you. And I want to declare it to you. I want to speak it over you. The Lord is speaking to you this day that you are absolutely safe in 2019. And that this is the year for you to go for it like you never have before. Okay, so I want you to turn to your neighbor. If they're your friend, that's nice. But just turn to a neighbor and say to them, you are absolutely safe in 2019. Okay, that was okay. Let's do it one more time. All right? Come on, we're using absolutes here. You've got to get a little more forceful. All right? You're speaking to them. Your faith for them is always greater than your faith for you. So... Uh, are you ready? You are absolutely safe in 2019. And this is the year for you to go for it like never before. Now think about, think about what this means, you see. There are dreams that the Lord wants to bring to pass this year that He spoke to you years before. There are things where you've lost things that the Lord is going to find for you in these years. There are going to be new things, but it is absolutely necessary that when you're going for it, you know you're safe. And there is only one way to be safe, and that is to know who you are in Christ and what you have in Christ. And so that's why we're looking at Ephesians chapter 1. This is one of the great, great passages in all of Scripture. It is speaking about being safe in God, or safe in Christ. So I want you to read with me. I like it when we read the Scriptures together. So let's read this out loud. Making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. All right, so this sentence, the English teacher's nightmare sentence, actually has, in English, uh, NIV has about 260 words. In Greek, it has 182 words. It is, it is one thought after another. Paul was pouring out praise and adoration and worship to God. He couldn't take time to punctuate. Yeah, yeah he couldn't use semicolons, couldn't use even, he didn't use, a lot of times he just piled participles on participles. And it's just this awesome overflow of love and adoration. But the subject of this, the one who's making it all happen, the one who's in charge, the one who's, who's 
the creator and also the instigator of everything is God himself in this. And then what Paul does is he explains that the object of all of God's work is really you. It's you. But it's not you alone. It's you in Christ. And so as I look at this passage, you can kind of sum up what's being said here in, in three statements. One, simple things, but really profound. One, God has a plan. It's a plan for you. You are in that plan. Secondly, all of history, your history, your past, your present, your not yet history, future. All of this is a part of the plan. It's included in the plan. But even more than that, everything is going to be summed up in the end in Christ. And so I want to unpack what that means for you. First, let's just, let's just talk about the plan. So God has a plan. Um, this, is, this is such an essential thing that you begin to realize that you are designed, therefore you have a designer. And the designer has a design that he calls a destiny for you. As a matter of fact, it says you are destined, if you are in Christ, you are destined to become like Christ. You are destined to live your life in Christ. He is making everything in your life come together so that you more and more are truly yourself, but you are truly yourself in Christ. Yes. Now, we live, and why this little simple thing is so important is you live in a world that really does not believe there's a design or a designer. And you live in a world, if you pay attention, you live in a world that you're getting bombarded all the time with this, with this kind of one thought, you are all that there is, and this is all that there is. There is nothing beyond this. So the, the greatest value, particularly in our society, is either some type of pleasure or some type of comfort. Because since it's all about you, it's all about how you feel and how you feel good. And so many of you have gotten to the place where... Uh, Probably many of you have gotten to the place where you don't watch commercials, you Netflix, you Amazon Prime, Hulu, or whatever. <laughs> you know, all of these things. But I, I personally still love commercials because commercials are theological. They're philosophical. I mean, if you watch a commercial, every minute you're being seduced to say, this is all that matters. So all that matters is how you look. All that matters is what you drive. All that matters is how you dress. All of these things will lead to your ultimate value. If you have these things, you'll have pleasure, you'll have comfort, but it'll all be about you because there's nothing else but now. Now, that philosophy is not new. As a matter of fact, it's dramatically presented by Shakespeare. And some of you are like, oh, I dusted that off in, in high school. I'm never going back to that again kind of a thing, but one of, the, one of the speeches that I had to memorize when I was in high school was Macbeth's speech after his wife dies. And so, he, I, I'm sorry it's a Sunday morning, but we're going to have a little Shakespeare. <laughs> so here, you might have had to memorize this as well. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Okay, if you're depressed, that's the effect. Okay, so then Macbeth says, out, out, brief candle, 
Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. You understand, uh, this happened because Macbeth had made his wife ultimate. And when she died, life had no more meaning for him. You see, when you make anything in this life ultimate, it will ultimately disappoint you. Because what will happen is that when you make something ultimate, it's your idol. It's your God. It's your reason for living. It's your meaning. If you listen to most love songs that are popular, that have ever been popular, they're basically worship songs elevating a person to a status that no marriage, no romance, no friendship can even sustain. And so what happens is, if God is your ultimate, if Christ is your treasure, then you can lose everything else. You'll still have your treasure. You'll still have what's ultimate. But what that's saying is, you're not ultimate either. And you're not, you also have to say, this isn't all that there is. Because if you are trusting in Christ, you're not just trusting in Him for this life, that you're trusting in his words about the life to come. Now, this philosophy stuff is everywhere in our lives saying that there is nothing, nothing whatsoever significant about you, about justice, about truth, or any other thing. And it all comes from the philosophies that have been handed down through the European kind of intellectual, uh, you know, like... Uh, uh, I would say uh, snobbery or intellectual kind of we know best sort of thing. And, and one of the British philosophers who is probably underneath most of this kind of English nihilism or, or nothingness is a British philosopher by the name of Bertrand Russell. Again, I give you Shakespeare and philosophy on the same day. I'm surprised you're here. But, uh, but you've got to see that, that these truths have worked their way into the lives of your friends and your family. They've worked their way into your choices. They've worked their way in the way you feel about things, how you interpret things. And so you might as well know that there is an assault on how you think about yourself and your choices. So here's where it comes from. This is, it's not as dramatic as Shakespeare, but it's incredibly well written. Russell says, such an outline, but even more purposeless, more void of meaning, is the world which science presents for our belief. Amid such a world, if anywhere, our ideals henceforth must find a home. That man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. All right, now, if Shakespeare didn't depress you, this one really should. Because here's what, here's what the brightest minds of European philosophy have to say about you. You are an accidental location of atoms. Listen, if you're an accident, what he's saying is, henceforth, you have to, you have to believe everything through the fact that everything in your life is random. There is no designer, therefore there is no design. Come on. Are you seeing this? Well, the, 
the problem is most New Yorkers believe this. But they don't have the courage Russell had. So let me show you what he says about this. He says that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. Are you getting depressed yet? And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain. What an arrogant. <laughs> that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths. You understand he's saying this is true. There is no truth, but this is true. Only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Now, what he's saying is, if you really are in the know, if you really understand that you're nothing but a location randomly gathering of atoms, then what you should realize is you can only sustain this life if you have an unyielding sense of despair every single day of your life. All right, so... Most people believe what Russell says, but they hate having unyielding despair for breakfast. They'd rather have cornflakes or granola or something. But so what happens is people who are believing that life has no significance, that it's nothing but an accident, are not as courageous as Russell is when he says, if I'm just an accident, then justice doesn't matter, friends, because there is no justice. Racism, treating the genders in inappropriate and, and malicious ways, none of this matters because we're just accidents. Are you not reckoning with me? So what happens then, what? The, the strong survive, the weak get plundered. You know, those who have power use it in any way that they want to use it. Sex can be done any way that you want to use it because there is no designer saying what the design is. Do you not see that this is pervasive in everything that's going on? And you and I, it's not that we need to be afraid of this. We need to begin to realize what a despairing view of humanity this is. Friends, there is an objective reality of justice. God is just. His character is just. Therefore, we can claim and appeal, whether it's on the basis of, 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 of injustice or unfairness, we can claim and appeal to a justice that we didn't create, but that God himself is. We don't have to look at our lives and our suffering and saying, this has no, no meaning. I'm going to avoid all suffering. I'm going to avoid all sacrifices. Because what we know is we're not an accident. We're a design of the designer. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that if you are in Christ, you are God's poem. You are his masterpiece. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared for you beforehand. Let me tell you, that doesn't lead you to despair. That leads you to say, anxiety, you have no place in me. That doesn't lead you to a place where you're angry at everybody who gets in your way. You realize, Lord, even these people that are in my way are part of your curriculum for teaching me how to be a person. Are you hearing me? Some of you are. It was rough in the first service, so uh, 
I don't know why all the introverts go to the first service. Some of you extroverts need to spread out a little bit. So the second point is this. If God has a plan, then what it means is everything in your history, everything in the history of the world, everything that's going on in the people you love and the people around you, everything is a part of his plan. Look, the word that Paul uses is such a powerful word. He says there's a blueprint. There's a blueprint. God has a plan for you. He has a blueprint for you. Would you turn to your your friend next to you, or even if they're not your friend, turn to them and would you say to them, God has a blueprint for your life. Come on, say it to them again. God has a blueprint for your life. I'm telling you, this is... This is one of the greatest news that you can have because, because what happens is this. People, and people ask me this all the time. Ever since I became a pastor, they go, are we free to make our own choices? Or is there a plan that is inescapable? And the Bible answers, yes. <laughs> Alan got it, nobody else. <laughs> Come on. It says yes. Look, look, human thought always polarizes. Because we are not infinite, we are finite. See, our God is infinite, which, which infinite means that He can make it to where every choice you make matters. Every choice you make is meaningful. Every choice you make is not forced on you, but rather it is coming out of your free will to choose. But at the same time, our God is infinite, and so everything works according to the purposes of His will. It is both and. It's not either or. Now, if you've ever been anywhere where it was all about fatalism, let me tell you something, friends. It is scary. I was in West Africa, which is dominated by the fatalism of Islam. And, and, and everything there, the people are so locked up in hopelessness and despair. Because they don't believe that their choices matter. They don't believe that responsibility is going to do anything for them. So let me illustrate this really practically. We were on a, we were on a road, and the road was horrendous. It should not have been a road that, that, that vehicles even drive on. It was so unsafe. But there were those piggyback tractor-trailer, tandem tractor-trailers, driving on this red clay road at breakneck speeds, and one of them that stopped at the same place we stopped at was missing numerous tires. I don't know. I don't remember if there was, I know an 18-wheeler, this was more like a 24-wheeler or whatever it was. I think it had 12 to 16 wheels left. And I asked the guy, I said, why do you drive on such a, a difficult road in an unsafe truck? And he looked at me and said, well, if Allah wills, today I will live. And if Allah wills, today I will die. I said, which road are you going to be on? Because I want to know which road I don't want to be on. <laughs> I want to know which road Allah's willing you to be on. <laughs> and what time you're going to be on it. Because out of my free will, I'm not going to be there. Hello. You understand, if you just believe everything is determined... And it's this fatalistic view of inescapable fate. And all you do is sit back and live passively. Let me, let me tell you what the agenda of Satan is. The agenda of Satan is for you to, to render you passive. 
so that, he, so that you began to believe that what he has to say about you is true. You're nothing but an angry person. You're nothing but a worried person. You're nothing but a loser. You're nothing but an immoral person. See, if you're rendered passive, he gets control. So he loves a fatalistic theology because it renders people passive. But the problem is some of us go the other extreme because our human minds tend to work in these lines. And so we go, okay, so if it's not deterministic, then it's all up to me. And so this is reflected in, in the great theology of one of the great film trilogies of all time, Back to the Future where Dr. Brown and Marty McFly are discussing the sovereignty of God and, and the determinism, and, and Dr. Brown says, the future is up to you, Marty McFly. Make it a good one. Gosh, are you kidding me? Thank God it's not up to Marty McFly. Oh, man. I mean, think about this. This is a, uh, academics call this American naivete. And we do this to ourselves. You can be anything you want to be. You can do anything you want to do. No, you can't. I'm 60 years old. I'm not going to get to pitch for the Yankees. I'm not going to get to play for the Giants or any other team. I'm not, I can't be anything I want to be. I can't, there were things that were open to me, but there were a lot of things that weren't open to me. There were things I had aptitude for. There were things I didn't have aptitude for. There were things that were good for me, and there were things that weren't good for me. We are not totally free. But let me tell you why it's so important that you get this. <laughs> Look at your past. Think about the things that you wanted, that you are so thankful now you didn't get. <laughs> uh, Tim Keller talks about this in a way that made me really understand it. And I had a similar experience to him. My junior year in, in college, I went to an evangelism project with Campus Crusade for Christ, and it was all college students, and man, every girl there was beautiful. I mean, it was just, I can, just 40-some-odd years ago, I still remember. <laughs> and so I, I was excited. I mean, it was fun to be there, and this one girl picked me out and chased me down. I had never had that happen before. I... I wasn't even interested in her, but she, her pursuit really, really captivated me. And I became smitten with her. And as soon as the evangelism project was over, she dropped me like a rock and went to somebody else. So I went to prayer and fasting. And I read my Bible all the way through in a week. And I said, oh God, she's the one. She just doesn't know it. Make her come to me, you know. And six months later, I met Lisa. And I go, oh, I've had 40 years of the greatest partner. I've had 40 years of, of great, you know, just having the wife who is, who is my, you know, just ideal for me. And if God had said yes to my request, I would not have got the best. So think about this. Go back into your... <laughs> A lot of wives are like... Hey. So think about your past and go, you know, how many times was I right about what I thought I needed, what I thought I wanted, 
I mean, I think if I look at my college days, 20% might be, uh, I might be giving myself a lot of credit. <laughs> Hopefully at 60, I'm a little higher in my percentage. But isn't it, isn't it an awesome thing when you realize, yes, my choices matter, but somebody knows how to overrule. Somebody knows how to make me safe. Somebody steps in. Uh, someone last night asked me this question. David says it this way. He says, your steps are ordered by the Lord. So what does that mean about your choices? Here's what I think it means. It means the next to the last choice is always yours. The next to the last choice. Because the ultimate choice is his. That doesn't make the, last, the next to the last choice meaningless. doesn't make it empty. Matter of fact, what you have is you have a God who takes even your stupid choices and transforms them. He can take the ashes of your bad decisions and turn it into beauty because he's the God who gives you beauty for ashes. He's the God who his own servant said, I know that my God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So listen to me. What it's saying is, aren't we thankful that though I have choices, I have someone who has my back? (laughs) So if it's an either or, If it's an either or, it's all your choices or it's all determined. One of these perspectives is basically a hopeless, I have no choice, it's determined already, it doesn't matter what I do. The other perspective is it's all choice where if you're actually believing that it's all your choice, then you should be afraid, very afraid. I mean, if tomorrow somebody said to you, every choice you have will be fulfilled tomorrow. Every desire, every wish will be filled tomorrow. I would recommend sleeping in. Because you and I have a thousand contradictions. And what does the Bible say then? The Bible says, here's the destiny that God has for you. He has destined that you would be like Christ. He's not going to give up. He's not going to waste any of your sorrows. He's going to take your pain. He's going to redeem even what others have stolen from you. Even what the locusts have eaten, He will restore. But it's only in Christ that this happens. And so if your destiny is not Christ, then it is all up to you. And I don't like thinking that I have to be in control. Because I've seen what I do when I'm in control. I know what it is to have the Holy Spirit leading, guiding. I can only do what I have in my own strength, my own intellect, my own experience. And let me tell you something. For the life that I think I was meant to live, those are not enough. And I am not an accident, and neither are you. There's a pattern. Your choices matter. No one is forcing you. Even though we love to say, I have no other choice. No one is forcing you to do what you can do yourself. For example, you can always serve. You can always love. You can always be humble. No one can keep you from patience. They can try it, and they will, but they can't keep you from being patient. 
There are so many things that the Spirit wants to empower you to do which are your true self. No one can keep you from loving them. They might not love you back, but that's not your control. That's not your responsibility. Yours is to love them. This is the pattern of Christ. He came unto His own, but His own received Him not, but He still came. And as many as received Him, He gave them the right to be called children of God. This is the pattern of Jesus. The, cho the choices matter. All of your free choices God is using to create and to fulfill His perfect plan. His blueprint for you is worthy of you. Now, let me give you some... Are you tracking with me on this? Let me give you some biblical examples just to back it up. One of my... One of the leading Greek teachers of all time told this as a way of illustrating. He said, look, if you look at Acts chapter 27, you will see how this unfolds. In Acts 27, Paul is on a missionary journey, and a storm comes up, and the storm is so bad that everybody on the boat is certain they will die. An angel appears to, to Paul. Now, an angel is basically speaking the destiny of the Lord. He's speaking the future into the present. And it is the word of the Lord because he's a messenger of the Lord. And he says to them, none of you will die. Everyone will live. This is the message of the Lord. So then the sailors are saying, no, we've got to abandon ship. We've got to get off the ship. We've never seen a storm like this. We know we're all going to die. And Paul says this. He says, if you abandon the ship, if you get off the boat, we will all die. But if you stay, we will all live. What is this saying? It's saying your responsibility is to stay in the boat. Your responsibility is not to protect yourself from the storm, but to stay in the assignment the Lord has given you in the storm. To stay hopeful, to stay blessed in the storm, to stay believing the favor of God is your protection in the storm. If you, however, say, I'm not safe, there's a storm and you abandon the boat, you're abandoning your protection. So it ends up, our choices matter. But, since your choice is the next to the last choice, you can relax. You can relax. Because you're really going to make a lot of mistakes. I can prophesy that. I mean, we make choices all the time without enough information. And others are looking for so much information, they never make a choice. So, what is the Bible saying? Well, it's saying that you can be absolutely at your work with all your heart. But you can also be absolutely at peace while you're at that work. Those of you who are so fretting over your children, stop it. I'll send you my psychiatry bill later. <laughs> Look, if you get out of safety, you can't pull people to safety. If you get out of assignment, you get out of the boat, you get out of where you're supposed to be, you've got no place to bring them where, because you're no longer safe. So here, here's a biblical example. So Joseph was a teenage boy. And uh, 
he comes from a, a family that is one of the most dysfunctional families in history. At least they're the most honestly dysfunctional. Because in every generation, there were favorites. And any time a son or a daughter is a favorite, it poisons the whole family. So Joseph was the favorite. And he's a teenager, and he, you know, I don't think thousands of years ago, teenagers were that much different than they are today. And so his, his brothers hated him. So in exuberance for the dream God gave him, he goes to these brothers who hate their snot-nosed teenage brother, and he says to them, one day God said, you're going to bow down to me. And they go, you snot. <laughs> and they want to kill him right there, but they decide, no, we can make some money off of him, and they sell him into slavery. So he gets into the slave, you know, he, he gets into the master's house, and he says, I'm going to be the best slave. And he gets up to the highest level with the slave, but he's also good looking, and the master's wife said, I want him. And Joseph says, no, you can't have me. I can't do this and sin against God. And so she accuses him anyway, so he gets thrown into prison. So he gets a prison. I'm going to be the best prisoner. <laughs> now he's the leader of all the prison. He's, uh, he's, he's, he's really ri risen up in the prison. He's number one in the prison. And there's a butler and a baker. They have dreams. The baker gets killed in his dream. The, uh, the butler goes all the way to the, to the top to be the cupbearer to the pharaoh. Years go by. Forget that Joseph's there. Then suddenly, somehow, after maybe 30 years of this, Joseph ascends to be the prime minister of Egypt. And he does so not just so Egypt can be saved, but he does so so that the line of Abraham can be saved because there's a famine. And Joseph alone has the food to feed his brothers who come, by the way, and bow down to their brother. Now, why is it that when God gave him the dream, he didn't say, Joseph, don't tell your brothers? <laughs> I mean, if you have any wisdom, you realize people can't tell you anything. You have to be shown. Now, that's terrible for my business, because I tell you lots of things. <laughs> but here's what I've found, is I very seldom have much effect before someone does something. Particularly if they disagree with me. They're just looking for affirmation that what they want to do is right. So they're going to do it anyway. So what happens is, my job is more to help you define it afterwards, and to give framework and interpretation to it, and get God's perspective on it, because, you see, prophecy is about laying bare the secrets of men's hearts and women's hearts. It's about helping you understand why did this happen and what will God do with this. See, what Joseph teaches us is that we can't be told. We have to be shown. And our God is a master teacher. So then, when his brothers come before him, after he's been in prison, he's been in the service, he's now risen up to the highest heights, he doesn't hate them. He loves them. And so when they bow before him, he looks at them and said, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. You see, he could not have said that as a teenager. He could only say that because he went through all of the trials of life and he said, God's blueprint is manifesting. Are you hearing me? So thinking about that with Joseph, you begin to realize what this whole passage that I read to you is really about. It's about how God has chosen to sum all things up. 
Now, what the scripture says is all history, everything in heaven and earth, everything that's been at war, everything at war with you, in you, all of the things that are falling apart, all of them will be summed up in Christ. And I, the, word, you know, the word summed up helps you understand what he means. See, nobody in this life can give you back what you've lost. Even, I mean, even if somebody says, I lied to you, but now I'm going to tell you the truth, you can never go back to who you were before they lied to you. The relationship takes on a whole new meaning. Your own heart has been fractured by that lie. If somebody rejects you and somebody else comes along and accepts you, in some ways, just getting accepted by somebody else doesn't do much more than scab over where somebody else rejected you. Because that's how the human heart is. We can, we can ignore the pain, but we can't make it go away. The brain is so complicated that it stores every hurtful memory. It stores the pain in that memory. And unless there is somebody who can take our losses, our minuses, and add them up and make a sum of it to where it all counts, to where it all matters, and the only one who can do that is God the Father in Christ summing up all that you have lost all that's been taken from you, even the things you yourself damaged, all of those things. And in Christ, He sums it up in Him and it becomes a glorious destiny for you. He does not waste your sorrows. Only two of you like that. That's fine. Are you hearing me though? Do you understand? We live in a universe that is in ruins. It is dying. As a matter of fact, you know, you're dying. Uh, you know, I hate to bring up physics because I'm not a physicist, but I've always loved the second law of thermodynamics, which basically says, in a, in a simplified way, anything organized goes to disorganization. And man, as I cook for Lisa and clean the house, that second law of thermodynamics is there every single... As soon as I get finished cleaning, it's time to cook the next meal. <laughs> and I sit down for a while to watch TV at night, and those dishes do not organize themselves. <laughs> they go from order to disorder. I've tried to figure out how I can do it all in one pan, one pot. I've tried to teach her to eat with her fingers so I don't have to... I have bought out the paper companies <laughs> so you can throw stuff away. But isn't it, I mean, just take that simple thing that everything you organize gets disorganized. Everything that has life, that has meaning for you, is changing even as you like it. So that tomorrow it's not the same as it was today. And the harder you try to hold on to it, the more it slips away from you. That, you know, it all started in Genesis 3 when we broke with God, when our relationship with God fell apart, the universe fell apart. Our universe, your life fell apart. And it is only restored when God says to you, come into Christ. And as you come into Christ, then everything that doesn't make sense to you and everything that you go, what will this count for? What will this mean? All of it will become no longer a liability but an asset. In, 
I've studied heaven kind of carefully lately. And one of the things that I see is God is putting many of us through very, very strenuous trials because he wants to make us people of substance for all eternity. Some of us have lost things that are very precious. God is storing them up for you in the place he has prepared for you. And when you receive them, you'll realize how much they mean to you because of how much it meant to him to keep it for you. Even your tears are stored in heaven. Are you hearing me? So here's the resolution that Jesus wants to make, and it's, it's a powerful one. He wants to be your king. See, the king wants to come and restore everything to its rightful place. Justice over injustice. Equality and fairness and love and peace and joy. That's his, that's his whole plan. Now, have you ever noticed, if you're a student of both history or you're a student of literature, all of literature has this thing about kings and queens who who come and were waiting on these kings and these queens to come and take their rightful place on the throne. You know, in some ways this whole, there's an obsession right now with a thing called Game of Thrones and the whole thrust of Game of Thrones is the rightful king taking her rightful place on the throne and making all things right. Is it possible, friends, that the clamor for this is something more than just an earthly desire? Because think about it. In history, not a one of those kings ascending the throne has ever done anything for any of us. As a matter of fact, you look at David. King David ascended the throne and then took a man's wife, killed the man, and messed up the whole country. Because something about when they're one of us, they always tend to find that power corrupts and the corruption manifests in their power. So what is it then that we're clamoring for? Why do we keep writing these stories? Why do these become obsessions for us, could it be that there's a memory trace in our DNA? A memory trace of when we were co-regents with the King of Kings in a garden, that, that we were ruling and reigning with Him, and every day at the end of our day, the King would come and visit us and walk with us, and we would talk with Him, and we would know that all things were right because the King was in His garden, and we were ruling and reigning in the garden that He gave us stewardship over. And then the day when we fell apart and when our relationship with the king fell apart, we ran from him, but he didn't run from us. And that king has chased you down in your history. And he's come to you and he said, look, I am your rightful king. I am the one who is right to be on the throne of your heart. Nobody else. This Paul calls the mystery. It's a mystery that was hidden in the Old Testament, now revealed in the New Testament, the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ, that your king didn't come to power by overthrowing. He came to power by dying. Your death on the cross. He was treated as you deserve so that now you can be treated as the king himself deserves. He was forsaken. Even our king was forsaken and rejected so that you yourself will never be forsaken or rejected. Look, if it is all up to you, you're never going to sum it up. But if you give yourself to the King and you begin to live in Christ and you believe with all your heart, Lord, Christ is in me and I am in Christ, and that's really your treasure, that's what's really ultimate to you, then every loss you've had will be gained. Every question you have will have purpose. Even the things you haven't understood, you will see how they worked out on the blueprint. Look, you're a finite 
You're a child. I'm a child. He's the father. Fathers always know more than the children. And there are questions, children answers that fathers answers will not connect to the child because the child doesn't have a framework for infinity. But if you can grasp this, and even a little child can grasp this, nobody's going to sum up your life for Jesus. Nobody's going to take the losses and make them gain. Nobody's going to take the liabilities and make them assets. Nobody's going to take your ashes and bring beauty from them except the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Will you stand with me? Can you hear me today? This is a word. This is why you can say you're absolutely safe. Paul said, I'm so safe for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. You know, I, he said, I consider everything a loss except for the surpassing greatness of the knowledge of Christ. Nothing else matters to him. He could go through the storm in the boat because he knew who controlled the storm and he knew who was protecting the boat. Friends, I feel like, I do feel it's very pointed today. Some of you, look, I really believe there are things God's speaking to you and you've been holding back. You've been waiting. You've been fearful. See, if you're safe, you're not afraid. But here's what I'd like us to do. I'd like us to take a stand against fear together. Okay, I want to give you the words. You can try them out. You can use them yourself. But these are, these are powerful scriptural words. So will you do this with me? Will you just close your eyes? Because I want the Spirit to minister to you. But we're making declarations, okay? I renounce. I reject. Fear is my source. Fear, you're not my friend. I bind fear of failure. Fear of uncertainty. Fear of death. Fear of other people. Fear of the future. I send it right now to the feet of Jesus. And I speak to the heavenly realm. God has not given me a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. I stand on this. I am safe. I have a strong tower. The Lord Jesus Christ, my King, is my strong tower. See, if you anchor yourself that you're safe, you believe the truth that you're not an accident, you're a design. You have a designer, and he has a destiny for you. Then you can work with all your heart. You can give your full self to what God has given you to do. Stay in the boat. You'll get to the other side of the storm. We say these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you.